as we find it in 1 Samuel 7, and I'll be turning there in just a moment. But we're going to be talking this morning about one of, I believe, the, one of the most neglected figures of the Old Testament, really of the whole Bible. That is the man Samuel. I call him the man heaven heard. You'll see why in a moment. We rarely stop and even think about Samuel. I think perhaps you'll be amazed uh, as we go through some of the reasons he's so important, if you haven't considered them before. Sometimes we think of him as sort of a foil to King David. You know, oh yeah, it was Samuel that anointed David and so forth. You know, really, as you read the scriptures, it wasn't David who made Samuel. It was Samuel who made David. Once Samuel departs by death, and by the way, he has an interesting reappearance after that, if you're not familiar. But once he departs, David's spiritual life sort of goes downhill. Samuel made David. Samuel was a great man of God, a great leader. And we're going to take some time and think about him this morning. The scriptures tell us that when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. I won't ask how many are groaning around here. (laughs) But uh, we're going to stay on the subject today. But I want to say this. Examples of ungodly and ineffective leadership are all around us. All throughout our culture. We have a, a explicit example in Eli, Samuel's mentor, if you will, all he had in the book of 1 Samuel. Sadly, sometimes even in the church, we find such leadership. But as servants of Christ, God calls us to make an impact, and we do not lead, we do not rule by the force of our personality or will or by exercising pressure or manipulation. The Apostle Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We lead by the impact of a godly example through prayer and the clear proclamation of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And we're going to see an Old Testament figure who, uh, who shows us these traits, of course, long before Christ's ministry on the earth, roughly a thousand years before Christ, and that is Samuel. In the book of 1 Samuel, Jewish tradition says he wrote the books that we now know as First and Second Samuel, originally one book in the Hebrew, but they record Samuel's death and a whole lot of things after that, so he probably didn't write all of these books, but he certainly appears to have contributed to them. 
We'll think about that in just a moment. Let's think first about Samuel's name, which uh, his mother Hannah gives to him in uh, 1 uh, Samuel chapter 1, verse 20, when uh, Hannah conceived, and we won't have time this morning to go through the, the back story. I invite you to go home today and maybe tomorrow on Labor Day, as you have extra time, search the scriptures and see if all these things are so, and read at least beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we find when Hannah, Hannah, the grace, her name means, uh, conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked for him from the Lord. Samuel's name, um, there's conjecture, the word uh, ale at the end is the name of God. Uh, Shamu uh, could be, in Hebrew, it, uh, it, it could be uh, from the idea of name, shame, in Hebrew. Shame is name. So it could be his name is God, or it could be here as uh, Hannah, you know, kind of seems to be saying that he he was asked of God. It could uh, be that sort of nuance of from the beginning uh, first half of his name. But most commonly, it, it's from the word for the Hebrew word for hearer. Uh, it appears to be related to that Hebrew root for hearer. So I think it's likely, and it still ties in with what Hannah says here in verse 20, that his name means God hears. So as I said, I call uh, Samuel the man heaven heard. And the title of my article that uh, backs up our sermon today is called Heaven Was Was Listening. And you can, again, go and find that later. In chapter 2, we have Hannah's prayer. She was a great woman of prayer. By the way, it's a model prayer for Mary in the book of Luke, at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, before Jesus is born, also for Zacharias there in Luke chapter 1. Won't have time to think about those things today, but just we'll pull one verse from it. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. And she gives this tremendous, beautiful, eloquent prayer of praise to God, knowing that uh, she is, uh, by the way, leaving her son, lending her son to the Lord after he'd been weaned, chapter 1, verses 24 through 28. They take Samuel and leave him, probably at about three years of age, and leave him in the, the place of worship in Shiloh, where the, where the uh, Ark of the Covenant is found and where Eli, the priest, is overseeing the work of God such as it is in Shiloh, uh, about 15 miles from Ramah. Of course, for us, that wouldn't uh, be too far. But back in this time, that was obviously a life-altering change, and it appears that uh, Hannah is only going to see Samuel about once a year, when uh, her, his mother, chapter 2, verse 19, comes and brings him a little robe each year that fits him as he's ministering and serving there before the Lord under Eli, with Eli with his wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are also here in the picture as you read the story here in the early chapters of the book of First Samuel. In chapter 3, we have the calling of Samuel. You may be familiar with that account, and we have... Samuel's incredible answer, and he says, Speak, for your servant hears. And the Lord gives his first revelation to Samuel. 
And Samuel is going to become a major, a transitional, a transcending figure now in the history of Israel. As we see at the end of chapter 3, Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel, chapter 4, verse 1a, came to all Israel. And Samuel is going to transform or, or really lay the foundation for all that is to come in the office of prophet. In chapter 9, verse 9, we read, Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go to the seer. For he who is now, as of Samuel's time, called a prophet, was formerly called a seer. So Samuel, the man heaven heard, he is actually the last judge, as Paul tells us in Acts 13.20, he's the last judge, and he's the first prophet, as Peter tells us in Acts 3.24, of Israel. The last judge, and of course think of the book of Judges, which we'll consider here in a moment, and the first prophet. The first prophet, now Moses was a prophet, but Samuel is going to remake that office of prophet for the the early prophets like Elijah and Elisha and the later prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. Samuel is foundational. He's in this transitional stage of uh, changing the office of prophet. And not only that, as we've seen, God established his word all throughout Israel, but he was an early writing prophet, really the first writing prophet. He wrote records that are recorded there in 1 Samuel. 10 and 1 Chronicles 29. And as I said, Jewish tradition makes him an author of uh, much of Old Testament scripture. Whether that is actually the case, certainly his records, we believe, would have been used in the writing of the inspiration of scripture through someone else who utilized his records, at the very least. But it's, I would not be surprised at all if to some extent that we can't know for certain right now, Samuel actually wrote the inspired record, the inspired scripture, and recorded part of some of these books. So Samuel was a Levite by background, and the Levites, his uh, particular uh, portion of them settled in Ephraim, and uh, his father does not appear to be working as an as a Levite at the beginning of the book, maybe that tells us the state of disrepair that the work of God was in here at this time. Uh, late in the period of the judges, remember Samuel is the last judge. And he actually, and this is a little bit of uh, something unknown to us as well, he, he functions as a priest. So remember, all priests are Levites, not all Levites are priests. Samuel certainly takes the role and acts in uh, the form of a priest, even in our chapter 7 that we'll see this morning. So he's a very, very interesting and certainly important figure, as we see. And he goes on to anoint Saul as king, and then to anoint David as king. He has this incredible place 
in the history of Israel. I don't know why we don't focus more on Samuel and on the lessons that we can learn from him. And we're going to think particularly this morning about the, the lessons that he teaches us about leadership, about being a leader, and what we can learn from him. We see him in this chapter functioning as prophet, priest, and judge. Certainly something that could be said there about him prefiguring for us Christ, who is our great prophet, priest, and king. And I don't know anyone that gets closer to figuring that in the Old Testament than Samuel as prophet and priest and judge, who anoints the first two kings. And ESV Study Bible says that he functions as the link between the judgeship and the kingship. Now, we started out thinking about the, those times in history when people are groaning because they're under the heavy weight of ineffective, even uh, ungodly leadership. And we know that uh, that sort of takes us back to the book of Judges, doesn't it? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, how the book of Judges ends for us. And we have, as we come to 1 Samuel 7, we find that the ark of God, which had been brought into the battlefield of all things in Aphek in chapter 4, sort of as a good luck charm. Hey, let's bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh, verse 3. And at first, and Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, are behind this. And, and uh, at first, this got the Israelites fired up. And they, you know, they were hooting and hollering. And the Philistines were scared for a moment. And then the Philistines just destroyed the Israelites. And they stole the ark. I mean, one of the darkest days in the history of Israel. And then you read about what happens as a result. Well, the report comes back to Eli, verse 18 of chapter 4, that the ark of God was captured and his two sons were killed. <coughs> when, when Eli heard this, he fell off his seat backward and broke his neck and died. And one of his daughters-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was with child and actually giving birth to a child, and she had a son. In verse 21 of chapter 4, she named him a name that you have heard from various uh, sources, if, if not Scripture, but I hope also from Scripture, and you know its meaning. It's kind of this funny name, Ichabod, which means something very serious. The glory has departed from Israel, and the ark is taken. And uh, this horrible, horrible event unfolds. And the ark then has an interesting history as it's taken to the city of Ashdod, the Philistine-controlled city of Ashdod, and the house of Dagon, the sort of the lead god in the pantheon of false gods of the Philistines. And what happens? Dagon falls down before the ark. And the statue breaks of Dagon before the ark. And you can read chapters 5 and 6, some really interesting things as God now um, shows himself strong on behalf of even unfaithful Israel, even with the ark captured. The ark's going to come back. It's going to come back to Beth Shemesh, which means house of the sun. And it's going to get there by some interesting means that you can read about. 
in chapter 5 and chapter 6. And by the way, that battle of Aphek is incredibly important back in chapter 4 where the ark is captured. Uh, it seems like Shiloh, where, where the work of God was centered, where Eli went to meet, uh, where Samuel went to live with Eli there, where the people came to worship God uh, in the tabernacle there at Shiloh. Shiloh was probably destroyed in this battle. And there are scriptures, you can look up, just plug in the word Shiloh in your Bible website and see the references, the, the destruction of Shiloh. Uh, was kind of like something we're coming up on next week, 9-11 for us. I mean, it was, it was just this legendary, horrible destruction, uh, even though the Bible doesn't speak about it in the record here in the history. But Shiloh may have been destroyed in judgment, and it may be at this time, as Eli dies now, that the, Samuel steps forward, and the nation begins to look to Samuel for spiritual leadership. And some of those details aren't given to us, but we sort of infer them if we look at what's going on by the time we get to chapter 7. In chapter 7, as it opens, the ark is taken back to Kirjath Jearim, verse 1. Uh, and this is part of the story from chapter 6 that you'll have to read about. But uh, they take it to Kirjath Jearim. The men of Kirjath Jearim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. And then something interesting happens in verse 2. So it was, Scripture tells us, that the ark remained in Kirjath Jearim a long time. It was there 20 years. So the next 20 years pass like that here in our text. 20 years. And then the next thing we know is all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. It was there 20 years. And this time period that is notable enough to, to delineate here, but not describe, it's not described for us, but it, we have a clue that it ends with this outcry of lament and sorrow. What's going on here? Well, the great uh, Old Testament Hebrew commentators, uh, Kyle and Elich, say the statement that 20 years had passed can only be understood on the supposition that some kind of turning point ensued at the close of that time. Only problem is Kyle and Elich don't know what it was. What happened? Do we have any clue? Can you think of anything else that took place right around this time that took 20 years? Oh, yeah. Samson judged Israel 20 years. Did you know that Samson and Samuel were contemporaries? Probably born three years apart. Remember, Samuel is the last judge. He's going to outlive Samuel and presumably the others that follow at the end of the book of Judges be the last judge. But Samson and Samuel are functioning, both dealing with the Philistines at the very same time. Now, you may never have had that thought before, but uh, Cyril Barber in his outstanding commentary here on, on the books of Samuel Volume 1, by the way, if you can find that he ever wrote Volume 2, call me collect, because I don't think he ever wrote Volume 2, but 
Volume 1 is tremendous. It says, because Samson was able to keep the Philistines at bay on Judah's western border, border, Samuel had relative freedom of movement and could engage in a Bible-teaching ministry. So do you see what's happening? Samson, whose judgeship lasted 20 years, and he's fighting off the Philistines, who are still sort of you know, dominant over Israel at this time. Assyria, Babylon, none of those great empires have, have come to the fore yet. Israel's enemies here really is the Philistines. Samson's fighting those, sort of keeping things calm. Samuel is leading the nation for 20 years during this time. Uh, Barber says, uh, during the same period, as a result of Jephthah's victory, he's another judge in the book of Judges over the Ammonites, the Israelites to the east, that would be in the Holy Land, where Samuel is, is living here in central Israel, enjoyed a degree of peace and prosperity. And he names these other three judges who are found in, in the book of Judges right before Samson comes to light. Ibzan, Elon, Abdon. They're keeping peace further to the east. So we have here Eli is going to die right into probably Samson's, the beginning of Samson's ministry. Samson and Samuel, you see the gray bar is the 20-year period that Samson is fighting off the Philistines. And during that time, Samuel is rising to leadership in Israel. And he's going about teaching the scriptures, judging the people, giving wise counsel, giving leadership to the nation at this very important time. Dr. John Whitcomb says it seems highly probable that Samson's death occurred shortly before Samuel's victory at Ebenezer, 1 Samuel 7, and that the destruction of the Philistine nobility gathered in the temple of Dagon gave Israel the opportunity it needed. Now, I trust you're familiar with the ending of Samuel's life, excuse me, Samson's life. We'll see just a little picture of it, literally a little, and picture of it in just a moment on the screen. But if you don't know, you can read about that in Judges 16, beginning in verse 23, where Samson, who at this time has gone through and much disobedience, much chastening, He's had his eyes poked out by the Philistines. I don't even like to think about that. And he prays to God. He asks to be put. He's, at the, he's in the Philistine temple with thousands of people, the leaders of the Philistines gathered, the lords of the Philistines. And he asks to be put next to the pillars of the structure that he's in. And he prays, verse 28, it's almost as if after all that he's been through, uh, he returns to the Lord, and he says, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two metal pillars which supported the temple, and he braced himself against them, one on his right, the other on his left. Then Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. 
and now word spread about that event, Garber says, and the nation is in shock. Samson's gone. Now what do we do? And they're shocked into this horrible lament and wakefulness that provide the catalyst for Samuel to call the people to a renewed commitment of themselves to the Lord. So we have here basically 40 years of bondage to the Philistines. Uh, Samuel and Samson are both both alive during the whole time. The first 20 years probably cover uh, basically after Samuel, I'm trying not to mix those two up, is called in chapter 3 and says, Here I am, Lord. And then we have the Battle of Aphek and all the issues of chapter 4, 5, and 6 of 1 Samuel. We come to verse 1. Then we have the other 20 years. These are the 20 years that Samson judges over the Philistines. And now we've come to 1049 B.C., at least very probably at that date. And here we are in 1 Samuel 7, and the nation is in shock. The nation is lamenting. The nation is crying out, desperate for godly leadership. And that's where the story picks up. And we find what Sam Uel is going to do next. Wearsby said it was a critical time in the history of Israel. And it took the prayers and guidance of Samuel to bring them safely through this dangerous time of transition. We're going to think just briefly about godly leadership and the four things that it can do. We see in verses 3 and 4 that godly leadership will be marked by inspiring hope. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts. This is sort of the the book of, of Judges in miniature here, what he's going to call the people to do. Return to the Lord with all your hearts. Put away the foreign gods. Baal, the storm god, and Ashtoreth, his consort, the goddess of, of fertility, both of which, the worship of both of which involved incredibly uh, horrendous, uh, immoral practices. And he says, uh, put away the, the foreign gods. Put away Baal and Ashtoreth. And prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Asherahs and serve the Lord only. If you want to really get to the heart of Samuel, take time also to read chapter 12 and his speech there in chapter 12 to the people where he makes some astounding pronouncements like this one. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. Godly leadership inspires hope. It provides hope. It offers hope to the people. And he says uh, that the Lord, verse at the end of verse 3, will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Interesting, four times in this chapter we see that imagery of the hand of the Philistines. It's also used in chapter Judges 13.1. The hand of the Philistines was on the people of Israel for 40 years. Godly leadership inspires hope. Godly leadership also calls for a commitment. 
Samuel said in verse 5, Gather all Israel to Mizpah. They're going to come to the city of Mizpah. And I will pray to the Lord for you. He's the man heaven heard. He's a man of prayer, just like his mother was a great woman of prayer, whose three years with Samuel influenced him for the rest of his life. And he's going to tell the people in chapter 12, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. He calls them to Mizpah. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. This is a ceremony that's sort of unique. It, there are many parallel passages that, uh, that may shed light on the idea that it's showing a total commitment, pouring it all out, uh, giving oneself totally, pouring something out that can never be reclaimed, although this isn't specifically prescribed in the law, and we don't know exactly why Samuel did this right now. We won't take any more time to think about that. But he does this, this ritual here of pouring out the water, and there's fasting also that day. And he said to them, we, we have sinned. They, the people said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. He was asking for a total commitment to the Lord God and to his ways. Wiersbe says that it is likely that this meeting at Mizpah marked the beginning of Samuel's public ministry to the whole nation of Israel. So from that time on, he was a focal point for political unity and spiritual authority. Now, but what do the Philistines say? Ah, we've got, we've got them where we want them now. The whole nation's together in Mizpah. Let's go attack Mizpah. We'll destroy the whole nation, right? Well, we see that godly leadership also inspires confidence. Confidence not in ourselves, but in the Lord God. Verse 7, when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines, note this word, went up against the children of Israel. And the children of Israel heard it, and they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us. Notice again, from the hand, from the hand of the Philistines, and verse 9, Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it. Now interesting, the Hebrew word for offer here in verse 9, same root as went up in verse 7. In other words, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel and Samuel countered that by offering up to the Lord God the sacrifice. And he countered the whole offensive of the Philistine army with that one sacrifice offered in prayer from a heart of faith. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Godly leadership inspires confidence. And we find that godly leadership in inspiring confidence, notice this in verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines did actually come. They drew near to battle against Israel. Notice what happens here. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day. Did you know 
that Hannah actually prayed for this back in chapter 2, verse 10. She said that from heaven he will thunder against his adversaries. The Lord will thunder against his enemies. And here he does it in answer to Hannah's prayer years ago. The Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. The wicked flee when no one pursues. You know that? If you have confidence in the Lord God, God will ultimately be faithful to you. He so confused them that they were overcome before Israel and the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below Bethkar. So godly leadership inspires hope, it inspires commitment, it inspires confidence, and the Israelites' confidence builds as they see God here actually responding to their believing prayer, actually working on their behalf, actually fighting the battle for them, and overcoming their enemies and allowing Israel to claim the victory. And then we see Samuel's godly leadership. Finally, in verse 12, it inspires gratitude. And here was, here's the reference from Lynette's song earlier this morning. A wonderful, memorable verse from this chapter. Verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone, and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer, Stone of Help, Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Hither by thy help I am come. You know, I'll just quickly share this illustration with you. That, that name has been familiar and meaningful to me my whole life because my great-great-grandfather uh, donated land for a church near Lamira, Wisconsin, which the only thing that's left is a cemetery called Ebenezer. And my grandparents, and now my two uncles and aunt, and now my mom and dad are buried there at Ebenezer. And we say that hither by God's help we have come. And God is faithful through Solomon excuse me, through Samuel and all that he's doing as a godly leader here. We won't have time to get ahead to Solomon today. But uh, Jeremiah's study Bible says that what we're going to see here next is a temporary peace throughout the land, perhaps it lasts all the way through Samuel's lifetime. Let's just read here through and see how uh, what happens as a result of all that was accomplished by the Lord for his people, and it wouldn't have happened without the prayers and the leadership of Samuel. And we find here in verse 13, the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord, again, was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, And Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also, there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. So Israel recovers the cities, the ground that was previously taken. 
They have peace with the Philistines. They have peace with the Ammonites to the east. And notice how the chapter ends. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, all within this circle here on the screen. And I believe he established something we read about in 1 Samuel 19, 19. He established the schools of the prophets. Would have loved to have seen the curriculum Samuel had for the schools of the prophets as he's transforming, initiating this office of prophet in Israel. And he judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his house was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. ESV Study Bible says Samuel's annual visits from his hometown of Ramah gave the people confidence and trust in God and in Samuel's leadership. I hope that I've just whetted your appetite for Samuel this morning to think about the importance of this man who we've so disregarded and so underestimated, misunderstood. I'd just like in closing to share uh, a thought with you about applying what we've considered this morning, because you might say, well, this sounds wonderful, Paul, but I'm not really a leader. I'm not, I, I, I can't be like Samuel. I might be like one of the people that he talked to, uh, but I'm not a leader. I'm not like Samuel. Well, you may not, you may not have the dynamic opportunities that Samuel had to stand before the people and pray for them and see God thunder down from heaven, but if you're a parent, you're a leader. <laughs> If you're a homeschooling mom, you're a leader. If you have a role in Grace Bible Church, of some office that you hold, you're a leader. Some responsibility you have, you're a leader. Uh, if you just have uh, other people that you can influence in your life who need to learn what you know, you're a leader. Jesus gave us all the great commission to go and teach everything that he's commanded us. That's his entire word, the whole Bible, teaching everyone in the world to observe and become a disciple of all that he's taught. Paul restates that for us in, in 2 Timothy 2.2, really the, the critical text for the whole church age. The things Paul said that you've heard from me, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The things that you've heard from Paul, another great leader in the New Testament age, we're to hold fast the pattern of sound words which we've heard from the Apostle Paul in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. The things that you've heard from him, from me, Paul said to Timothy, oh, you didn't just hear it from me. We're not a cult. We're not, I'm, not a, I'm not some kind of a tyrant. Uh, there are other teachers. There's many witnesses. There's many who, who can verify what I've said. Timothy, take all these things that you've heard and you and me also are to take the things we've learned and commit these to other faithful men who will be able to go on and teach others also. And I think that's the application for us. From, and we see it modeled in an Old Testament sense from Samuel as he's going around to these places, teaching, uh, building year after year on their learning, establishing these schools of the prophets. What a tremendous uh, forerunner to what we call discipleship here in the age of the church in the New Testament. Alva G. McLean says, in the case of Samuel, last of the special judges and the connecting link between them and the period of the kings, 
His birth and his commission appear as miracles of divine power. Now, I want to say one more thing about Samuel. He wasn't perfect. You already guessed that, I'm sure. But actually, there's an interesting allusion in Psalm 99. Talks about the greatness of Samuel. I mean, he's on par with Moses and Aaron. But you know, all three of them had some issues in their lives. And in fact, the psalm tells us that. They called on the Lord. He answered them. He answered them. He forgave them. We haven't seen Samuel do anything needs forgiveness in this chapter. Oh, read the next chapter. It begins with the only sad incident about Samuel's life. He had learned from his mentor Eli to neglect his sons who weren't like him. They didn't have the qualities he had. Sad little footnote in the life of Samuel. And God had to forgive him and in fact take vengeance on his deeds. We've celebrated the Lord's Supper this morning. And so you've heard and seen pictured the gospel that Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Messiah of Israel, the one that Samuel prefigures, is our Savior, our sin bearer, who died on the cross in our place because all of us have done deeds worthy of God's vengeance and needing his grace and his forgiveness. He died on the cross in your place for your sins so that you could have that forgiveness of sin and eternal life in heaven with him who rose again so that you could live forever with him. Now, Samuel, ESV Study Bible, tells us he secured Israel, made it stable externally and internally under the judgeship of Samuel, for the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines, and there was peace between the Israelites and the Amorites. I want to share one more verse about Samuel. Did you know he made for, all, for his failures and for all the hardships he endured and all the trouble he went through? You know what? It was all worth it. Do you know he made the Hall of Fame? He made the Hall of Fame. Even Samson made the Hall of Fame. They're in the same verse. And David went in with Samuel. I can just sort of see David saying, I need Samuel to go in with me into the Hall of Fame. They made it in. Samuel and the prophets who followed him. Hebrews 11, verse 32. Now, we have considered this morning leadership, the idea of leadership, the, the qualities of leadership, the qualities of Samuel. The greatest leader, as I've said, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And as again, as we've seen throughout this morning, he didn't just, he didn't just leave home and go from Ramah to Shiloh. He came all the way from heaven to be our Savior, so that if you trust in Christ alone, you will be saved by the grace of God alone, through faith alone. And then you can be a leader like him, a servant leader like him who came not to be served, but to serve, like Samuel, to give, in Christ's case, his life a ransom for men. One last illustration and we'll be done. Uh, Ronald Reagan was elected president when I was in sixth grade. He was there until I was a sophomore in, high, in uh, college, not high school. I guess I thought at the time he'd be there forever. Him or someone just like him, right? Little did I know. 
Here's what he said. On my desk in the Oval Office, I have a little sign that says there's no limit to what a man can do or where he can go if he doesn't mind who gets the credit. That is Samuel, this servant leader who came not to be served, but to serve. Father, we thank you for the leaders who have led us, who have ruled over us, whose faith we follow. Help us to be like them and to lead others for your glory in your ways. I pray, Lord, that if there's one here who does not know you by your grace through Jesus Christ, Father, you would draw them by your spirit and they would turn to you. Thank you and praise you for this time we've had together today. I pray that you'll use it to bring glory to yourself and to increase faith in each of our hearts by the word of God. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.